0: Welcome back to the program. SLR cameras, pagers, paper maps, travel agents, home telephones, answering machines, transistor radio All are quaint reminders of days gone by. Today, whole new industries are taking over from the old. The way we find where to stay when we travel. Transportation itself, even the nature of money, is changing. Back in the 90s, we heard about the innovator's dilemma about how cheap imitation products would flood the market before their manufacturers could create products with higher value. Perhaps Sony and the Japanese companies of the time were the penultimate examples. Today, though, new products enter the marketplace full-blown, cheaper, better, and more efficient, and they receive instant acceptance. So how do traditional incumbents defend against this? They don't. They either innovate on today's terms, or they go the way of Blockbuster, BlackBerry, Kodak, Garmin, or the U.S. Post Office. These are just some of the ideas put forth by my guest Larry Downs in his new book, The Big Bang Disruption. Larry Downs is an Internet industry analyst and author on the impact of disruptive technologies on business and policy. His previous book was Unleashing the Killer App. It was one of the biggest business bestsellers of the early 2000s. He's a columnist for Forbes and CNET and writes regularly for numerous publications, including USA Today and the Harvard Business Review. It is my pleasure to welcome Larry Downs here to talk about his newest work, Big Bang Disruption, Strategy in the Age of Devastating Innovation. Larry Downs, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Great to have you here. One of the things that you talk about is that as dramatic as all this change is that's taking place now, that we have gone through similar periods, going back to pre-Renaissance time, when we have seen dramatic change in the way we approach things and and the value that we can glean from looking at some of this historical context?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, it's not as, uh, as frequent as it is today, but uh, gosh, you know, we can think about many technologies that change the world. I mean, one in particular might be the printing press. And even though, of course, it took, uh, you know, 100, 200 years for that revolution to play out, it was clear right from the beginning that it was going to uh, be something that changed n- not just the way people got information, but really the whole structure of society.
0: And talk a little bit about the speed at which change is happening today, and really the uniqueness of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what's really different, and certainly uh, in the last 50 years in particular, the one technology that's been driving an accelerated pace, of course, has been everything to do with computers, including, obviously, the Internet and computers themselves and all the devices. Uh, We've been on this uh, amazing ride of uh, what's called the Moore's Law, where every 12 to 18 months, computers get... Twice as powerful, but the price actually goes down, and so effectively we've had exponential improvements in this core technology for a number of generations. And now, you know, every time there's a, a new 12 to 18 month period, we're of course doubling a bigger and bigger number, so it gets even more disruptive uh, from the standpoint of, of companies, but even from better from the standpoint of consumers. It gets more exciting because we get better stuff, cheaper stuff, and we can, in some ways, we can count on that going on for the foreseeable future.
0: Talk about that nexus between better and cheaper, because as you talk about in previous periods of innovation, we look at the innovator innovator's dilemma. We see that stuff came online that was in some ways a cheaper imitation. Now, what we're getting sure. is cheaper and better.
1: Yeah, and that's the big difference, and that's 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 why we really. Uh, wrote the book is because, of course, the managers and businesses have been taught for for 20, 30 years now to look for these disruptors coming in at the low end of the market and, uh, you know, not really ready for prime time. Uh, and uh, that means that they have, you know, they had some time to respond if they saw that happening. The problem now is for them is that because of this so exponential improvement in technology, uh, that's not the case anymore. When something shows up, uh, it's better and cheaper. And more to the point, because uh, consumers can talk to each other through social media, through their connected devices, and everything else that we have, when something good comes along, consumers know about it, and they tell each other about it instantly. And so when a a really disruptive improvement happens, it doesn't take years for it to penetrate the market. It's going to be overnight. Everybody who wants it is going to know about it, and sometimes with a very short period of time, they're already going to have purchased it, maybe switched away from a
0: product they were on for decades before. And give some examples of that, Larry.
1: Well, of course, the, the, the one we talk about most in the book, or at least at the beginning, was this idea of uh, navigation. So, of course, uh, we had, a lot of us uh, had in our cars or carrying around with us these uh, GPS navigation devices, little boxes that gave us uh, directions, and maybe eventually they started, you know, saying the directions out loud, the maps got better, everything was sort of improving on an incremental basis. And then one day, uh, a couple of years ago, Google decided. You know, they had the, the data also. They had the same access to the satellites, and so they did it as a smartphone app. And because uh, because they're Google, they were able simply to, to distribute it to everybody with an Android device. And Apple did it later for Apple devices. And so, literally overnight, everybody with a smartphone had an onboard uh, navigation app that was free. Uh, it was better. And it was constantly being improved. It was easier to update it because it was already on the phone. It was already on a device you had. And so suddenly, literally overnight, there was no longer any real reason to buy one of these standalone devices. And yet the, the manufacturers of those devices, you know, they, they knew about smartphones. They knew this was going to happen or could happen eventually. But they felt like uh, people following the, the innovators' dilemma that when it showed up, it wouldn't be as good and they'd have time to respond. And it just didn't turn out to be the
0: case. One of the things you point out is generally these things happen so quickly that there's very little warning to the incumbent markets.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's, not, there's not the traditional kind of warning. Uh, if you're looking at it through the old lens of, you know, kind of focus groups and market research and internal R&D, you're very likely going to miss it because many of these disruptors are coming from outside your industry. So, of course, you know, Google was not in the, uh, the navigation or map-making business. If, if that's where you were looking for your future competition, you just wouldn't have seen it coming. But if you, uh, if you sort of keep your nose more to the, to the ground of what's happening in terms of technology, uh, again, the, the sources of information here are legions, social media. You don't have to do focus groups. You, just, you find out what customers are talking about because they're all talking, and they're all talking in a largely public forum, You can find out about these things when they're very early on, before they even become a product, when people are still kind of working out the the general idea. And if you're an incumbent, if you're listening to the right people at the right time, you can have, you know, all the warning you need to figure out what you're going to do. Unfortunately, many of the companies we looked at, particularly the, the more traditional businesses, especially those that are kind of far away from this consumer electronics industry, they're just not used to actually listening to customers. Many of them don't realize that that kind of information is even available.
0: One of the other dangers, though, to the innovators in this, this whole process is that they have to be prepared to scale up quickly because when something catches on, it catches on.
1: Yes, that's right. We refer to that as a catastrophic success. Uh, you know, it's, it's a nice thing. It's a nice problem to have, I suppose, that if you you, you launch a new product or a service and people like it, uh, you may find that you have millions of customers in a very short amount of time. And we've seen this, by the way, with a lot of the new services. Uh, again, uh, many of them working with mobile devices, but things like uh, the car-sharing services like Uber and Lyft and Sidecar and some of the, uh, the, you know, sort of rental accommodation services like Airbnb, they take a tremendous uh, sudden uh, uptake in the amount of business they've got. So they had to be ready with the right kind of infrastructure to absorb millions of new customers. Now, fortunately, particularly if you're a, a sort of web-based or a cloud-based service, you can uh, rent that infrastructure. You can lease it pretty easily. And if you're making products, especially if you're using kind of off-the-shelf uh, electronic components, as uh, many of uh, these products do, you can also, uh, you know, outsource a lot of the uh, production and the raw materials, again, using the Internet to find suppliers, to find uh, producers, to find distributors, So in some ways, it's not impossible to go from zero to 10 million customers in a short amount of time, but you definitely need to have uh, prepared for that uh, possibility when you got started.
0: Talk a little bit about the need for innovators to keep innovating because there's also, by virtue of everything we've been talking about, a shorter life cycle to any kind of new innovation.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, if you, if you have catastrophic success, essentially you're going to saturate your, your, the bulk of your potential customer base in a very short amount of time. So what do you do next? You know, a lot of companies that we looked at made the mistake of imagining that that uh, tremendous growth line was uh, simply going to continue. After all, it had been going up. It has been doubling, you know, every couple of months uh, for several months in a row. And they thought, well, that's just going to keep going, right? We're doing great. Everybody loves us. But of course, very quickly, you're going to reach the point where most, if not all, the people who are interested in your product have it already. And at the meantime, of course, you know lots of other people have seen your success. And uh, it's not hard for them to come up with an imitation or even maybe go you one better just with a slightly different combination of parts. So once you've got catastrophic success, you know that uh, it's going to be a short-lived period of time. You've got to start looking for your next product, your next service, Uh, maybe an acquisition, maybe you're going to sell out. Uh, You know, we've seen all these, of course, billion-dollar acquisitions of very young companies uh, in the tech industry. That may be what you do next, but whatever it is, you have to be planning for it and not expect that this uh, enormous growth is going to continue forever.
0: In many ways, Andy Grove got it right 12, 15 years ago when he said only the paranoid survive.
1: (laughs) Andy Grove got a lot of things right. Uh, That's certainly true, and of course, it's always been true in very, very competitive industries like the electronics industry, like entertainment, like gaming, uh, consumer products. You know, these are industries where it's just been a cutthroat business uh, for as long as we can remember. Uh, a problem, of course, is that we've got a lot of uh, industries now that, that just haven't had that experience of being intensely competitive. Maybe they're a regulated industry like a utility. Maybe it's the pharmaceuticals where you have long lead times for, for new products and service. So they're not used to seeing the kind of innovation, the kind of outsiders, uh, the kind of uh, you know people coming from left field, doing strange things, putting you know new combinations of things together and disrupting them that those of us in the sort of more competitive industries are used to. So what we found is, for a lot of those industries, you know, there's a there's a big there's a big backlog. You know, think about healthcare and medical services, lots of unhappiness among customers, frankly among providers too. But the change is very slow because of the way it's regulated. Well, technology is kind of breaking down those barriers, and when the floodgates open, to mix, I think, now six metaphors, (laughs) uh, once they open, you're going to see change happen even faster than it does in these more competitive industries.
0: To what extent is talking about this kind of innovation uh, sort of a bubble unto itself itself, and to what extent is it part of the much larger series of transformations that are taking place in a global economy?
1: Yeah, so I, of course there, I wouldn't call them bubbles, but it's clear that uh, that there have been you know, sort of cycles of, of innovation, and particularly even in the, in the computer field, we've had the ups and downs in the stock market, but that's probably not the right place to look. If you look at how product development and how uh, actual consumer adoption has happened, it doesn't slow down. It doesn't slow down when the stock market goes down. It doesn't slow down, you know, when there's a recession. Uh, consumers, even in the last recession, the one industry that was seemingly uh, immune to any kind of harm was in uh, smartphones and other devices. That's just, you know, tablets and everything, the iPhone, the iPad. All these things kept going even uh, in the worst uh, part of the of the last recession. So if you're just looking at kind of financial performance, you may be missing this bigger picture, as you mentioned, which is that uh, one of the nice side effects, I think, of these uh, technological developments is kind of a, a, a single global market uh, for, for goods and services, for information flow, uh, talking to each other. You know, not, We're not just talking about business here. We're talking about politics and social change as well, of course. And this has been a trend that really... Uh, hasn't slowed down. There's really been no, no bubble here. This has really been a consistent improvement uh, and certainly amped up now as the as the technology just keeps getting better and cheaper at an accelerating pace.
0: The change, however, has been so dramatic, there are clearly parts of the economy and the political realm is perhaps the penultimate example that haven't been able to keep up, that really have not been able to adjust and or adapt to these broader series of changes.
1: Yes, I think that's right. Uh, uh, you know, for consumers, I like to say this is kind of a golden age because, you know, we can now rely on things getting better and cheaper. Uh, you know, whatever product or service you're talking about, uh, in most industries, we know it's just going to get better. Uh, for people who just aren't used to that, and I think you're right to say that uh, government and politics is one particular aspect of this, uh, it just gets more disruptive. Uh, you, you may remember the, the, the uh, old book by uh, Alvin Toffler from mm-hmm. the 70s called Future Shock where we talked about how you know, dramatic change is, uh, is difficult for people to adapt to. I think what we found is that consumers don't really mind. They can adapt you know, some things easier than others. But we have institutions, particularly like government, which are designed to change slowly. Uh, usually that's a good thing. That's a, that's a good part of the design. But when they're faced with a remarkable change uh, and, uh, and, and citizens who are enabled by technology... To, uh, to voice their opinion in a much different way and get things done in a much different way, they often have a hard time. Of course, we've seen you know around the world many national governments, particularly very restrictive and repressive ones, they just simply collapse.
0: Talk a little bit about the adaptability to change and the degree to which some of it is generational and some of it isn't. Talk a little about what you've discovered in that regard.
1: Well, it's true. I'm you know I'm starting to move into a different generation myself. <laughs> And I, I have to admit that, you know, my adaptability isn't what it used to be. But I think it's a, it, it's a myth to say that uh, older people in particular uh, can't, uh, can't adapt to new technologies. Uh, it is true in the, in the latest surveys that we've seen that, you know, the, the one distinction I think left in terms of what used to be called the digital divide of who, who has uh, computer access and who doesn't or who's using the Internet and who isn't it it no longer really makes any difference whether, you know, uh, racial differences don't apply anymore, um, rural and uh, urban differences aren't so significant anymore, educational and income differences. The one difference that still does remain is older Americans. The the likelihood that uh, older Americans aren't part of the uh, connected generation, not part of the Internet, uh, is much higher than for any other demographic group. Uh, that's not to say that, the, that they're way behind or that they're completely out of it, but we definitely need to think, particularly for uh, older people, we have to think differently, I think, about uh, accessibility and usability, and particularly you know, if you have trouble seeing or hearing, uh, typing, and all these kind of things. But we've seen a lot of technologies now coming along that really are aimed uh, at this uh, older generation. In fact, uh, I've just come back from the annual Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and I think one of the most exciting categories of new products we saw there was in the health and fitness uh, realm, and many of these are, are things that are aimed at, at making it easier for seniors, not just to get access to the Internet, but actually for, for older people to monitor their health, to, uh, you know, to uh, improve their, their walking, improve their health outcomes, so these are actually technologies named not just at getting them online, but at actually making their lives better.
0: Another area that seems to be behind the proverbial curve on this is what's being taught in business schools and how business is approaching this kind of big bang disruption.
1: Yeah, the academics, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that they're the most far behind, but it's true. There's, there's a lot of institutional bias uh, in business school and, and elsewhere to, to think about business the way we've always thought about it uh of course they are also being <laughs> challenged by their students oftentimes i, I was uh, uh, taught at uh, at uh, university of california berkeley business school for some number of years uh and uh i was always uh, felt like you know the students were just maybe one step behind me in some cases a couple steps ahead of me when we were talking about uh, internet business and and new business models new ways of doing financing you know they uh they knew a lot more than i did in some cases and it was all i could do to to, to keep up
0: what are we seeing really where the envelope is being pushed, where this kind of big bang disruption is really feeding into itself and quickly creating new opportunities all the time?
1: Well, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is the way in which this uh, kind of confluence of technologies, the Internet, mobile devices, cheap computers, uh, component parts for smartphones, they've all kind of come together to create this world in which even an individual or a small startup, any entrepreneur, can experiment uh, in the market, kind of build a product very easily, launch it, and see how it goes. So you know, one of the things that I, I really like to look at is uh, uh, crowdfunding sources like mm-hmm. Kickstarter, Indiegogo, where anybody who has an idea and a design sort of put up their project and, and see if they can uh, lure enough people to contribute to it so that they actually build it. And if you uh, look on the the range, the amazing range of things that are people are doing, it's not just computers, right? It's, it's uh, food products, it's uh, fashion, it's art. Uh, all sorts of, of things are finding their markets. And these markets may never be enormous, but in some ways they're, they may not have existed at all before these kinds of platforms were available. Uh, right. I'm here in, in New York today. I think if I went across the river to Brooklyn, I would find that you know every single person in their apartment has their own business, their own product, their own thing that they're doing. It's kind of become a, a new kind of electronic cottage industry where people are able to follow their passion, build the things they want to do, and find their markets with, uh, with much less difficulty than was ever possible before.
0: One of the things that makes this possible, you touched on it before, is the fact that information is so porous. Information is so available, this near-perfect market information. What about when there is so much clutter in the marketplace, and, and as you say, everybody has their own business, their own information they're putting out there. How does that yeah. fit into the equation?
1: Well, it's true. There, of course, there, there's uh, you know, terabytes of new information are being created every second. And I've seen some really uh, wonderful and frightening statistics about this uh, recently. But we also have better tools all the time for navigating that information. You know, everything from from sort of simple Google searches, but of course google nothing simple about it. They get uh, much more smart about figuring out if you start to type this, you probably mean this, or if you're searching for this, you probably mean this, so you're not just getting kind of uh, raw data uh, you're getting pretty well pretty well filtered data uh, and, and, and also that it learns as you go along and uh, you know for businesses, those tools are even more sophisticated. the ability to kind of slice and dice the data and predict uh, trends and so on this uh, world of analytics has has really improved. And one of the reasons it's improved is because, the you know, you can just throw so much computing horsepower at a problem, literally crunch the numbers and uh, and crunch more and more of them all the time more quickly and at a lower price, that the ability to kind of filter and sort and analyze through data uh, has become its own kind of an art form. And uh, in, in many ways, it's, I think, keeping pace with the Dramatic increase in the amount of information so it's, it's kind of an arms race between them but I think so far the the analytics are winning.
0: Is there a downside to any of this?
1: Well I don't like to think so uh, but of course I, I, I can't be completely blind to the fact that that some people just do have trouble adapting obviously uh, businesses do. Uh, we have uh, seen already industries that have been kind of rewritten overnight and that's a very disruptive. It's uh, it's very devastating to to the business. It's uh, it's uh, you remember what the Joseph Schumpeter referred to this as the uh, perennial gales of creative destruction. That's how he described the way capitalism works. And I often, when I'm looking at these industries, I also think of what De Winston Churchill said, which was capitalism is the worst system except for all the others. So there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of destruction that happens. And I think one of the ways in which it, it really is troublesome is uh, that it can affect labor markets, that, uh, you know, you can, especially when you're getting a big technological shift, this is going historically all the way back to the beginnings of, of capitalism, uh, big technological shifts can displace uh, uh, large segments of the labor market, and they may be difficult to retrain people, for example, whose whole life was uh, involved in uh, heavy manufacturing, uh, when we have better and cheaper robots to do it, uh, those uh, those workers uh, may have a very difficult time adjusting to some new skill or to new, to some new business. Uh, I think that's probably the one area that, that concerns me the
0: most. And will there be ways, from an information perspective, a technological perspective, that we also need to begin to address innovation to deal with those problems, the problems that are growing out of this?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the most interesting. New uh, industries to emerge in the last couple of years has been in education uh, it 's coming largely out of uh, companies that are not in the traditional institutional you know ivy league uh, on campus kind of uh, things. but we have companies like the Khan Academy, you know, sort of started by people who are not traditionally in the education business who say look we can we can do a much better job of educating many more people. We break it into units." Of learning, and we give them different kinds of incentives. We don't require them to be physically in, in some uh, arbitrary place, uh, and we're seeing, you know, pretty dramatic innovations going on in education and learning and training. I think these have great promise and great potential to help kind of ease this uh, th- this labor problem I mentioned before
0: of course, the other pushback is from those that have vested interests in particular areas. Education is one where we've seen that go on. You and I were talking before we went on the air about Uber and the pushback from traditional cab drivers, for example. There are, there are lots of right. vested interests and regulatory and lobbying efforts that are pushing back against some of this innovation.
1: Yeah, no, no surprise there and also nothing new there. It's, uh, it's, it's always kind of in my uh, historical look at these technologies and how they change markets. It's always the, uh, the kind of the, the last, last stand for the uh, incumbent uh, in the face of inevitable change is to rely on law, uh, on the regulations or on, you know, copyright or patent or other kinds of, of techniques to at least slow down the pace of change to something more manageable. Uh, generally, they can't really stop it or they can't stop it for very long. Uh, but the fact is that the, the, the change is coming and they understand uh, that this is a, an inevitability uh, and of course, there's a there's a new role for them that they could play in this world, right? So when we talk about the the uh, the, the taxis and the hotels and the rent-a-car companies and all the other people who are being disrupted by some of these interesting uh, uh, surface applications, uh, there's no reason why they couldn't be doing the same things, except that you know up till now they didn't have a real incentive to uh, to do so. But one of the things that is new is that particularly uh, in the last couple of years, again, because consumers can talk to each other and because they can organize through social media, as we see in, you know, political realm, they can also do it in the uh, economic realm. And so in some of the cities where uh, Uber and some of these other services have gone in, well, of course, the, the traditional incumbents, they rush to the regulators, they say, hey, they're in our business, but they're not following the rules. You've got to stop them or ban them. And initially, they win. But then what happens is the, uh, the the sort of loyal, fanatically loyal users of these services, they tell each other that this is what's happening, and they literally go. They start showing up to, you know, Public Utility Commission and, and Taxicab Limousine regulator. They start showing up to the meetings of the regulators, which is probably the first time for many of them in history that they've actually seen a an, an, an real consumer uh, show up at these meetings. And that's, uh, that's pretty scary to a regulator. They've managed to um, kind of through these... uh, Crowdsourced campaigns of showing up at the meetings, they've managed to turn back the tide in several cities where it looked like uh, these services were going to be banned.
0: Have you seen any examples where an incumbent in in almost any area has been able to fully adapt and in fact leapfrog ahead sometimes in any of these innovative areas? You
1: know, we have. We saw a lot of them. Of course, that was uh, really exciting for us. Uh, most of the work that we do, my uh, colleagues at uh, Accenture and, and myself, is with the incumbents, so we were glad to see that uh, it wasn't all bad news for them. I think one great example was in the world of, of lighting. This is not uh, anything to do with computers, but one of the things we, we saw was uh, Philips, uh, which you know one of the inventors of the incandescent bulb and certainly one of the leaders in producing those very profitable light bulbs for over 100 years. They looked at some data that said, you know, the, the pace with which LED technology is improving is following a similar curve to computers. It's getting better and cheaper. It's kind of having this exponential growth. And several years ago, long before it was actually any kind of real threat to their business, Philips put a stake in the ground, and they said, we see it's inevitable, so let's not wait. They announced that they were going to get out of the incandescent light bulb business and uh, before any of their competitors uh, had shown any interest in LEDs, And they said, uh, we're going to start investing now in LED. We see that it's got great potential. It can be better because you can change the color and all these other things. And then they started going around to governments and lots of countries and said, you know, we think this is such a good idea. It's so much more energy efficient. It's more sustainable. We think you should set a deadline by which everybody has to stop making these uh, very wasteful, incandescent bulbs. So they actually took what could have been a, a devastating thing And not only did they get kind of first mover advantage by being the first major producer to say, we're getting out of this business, we're going to embrace the new technology, but then they put all their competitors kind of, uh, you know, uh, at a disadvantage by being the ones setting the terms for when this transition was going to happen.
0: Larry Downs, he's the co-author of Big Bang Disruption, strategy in the age of devastating innovation. Larry, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks again.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.